welcome <laughs> to Jack Kelly. Let's go live with Wendy Turner Williams. It sounds like Hi, such everybody. a cool name, doesn't it? It sounds like you're like a big actress or something, doesn't I'm it? I'm official in some way. It somehow <laughs> brings more efficiency to me. <laughs> well, Wendy, you know, I, I got to know her when I was writing a Forbes article that she was a chief data officer, executive. And at the time, I wasn't even really familiar with it. And uh, what I'd like to do is just turn it over to you, Wendy. Maybe you can give a little bit of background about your career arc, what you've done. And the subject for today is about long-term you know, unemployment and how kind of it sucks. So yeah. then we can get to that. And hopefully maybe you and I can give some tips to people what to do, what not to do. And it doesn't even have to be long-term unemployment. It could be people who are short-term, people who are just having problems. So right. we could talk about that as well. So Sounds if you like- if you could just tell a little bit like your background, how you got into tech, because I think is a really interesting story. Yeah, um, thank you, A, for number one, for having me. It's it's nice to see you again in person. Um, I have an interesting career arc. Um, I have a history degree. Um, so I, I wasn't someone who came out of this, you know, STEM school, et cetera. In fact, I, I remember taking one programming class in college and I hated it and I dropped it, I think, after my very first test, which I felt, by the way. <laughs> wait, wait, um, when you did that, just out of curiosity, did you have the punch cards? Was this back then or no? It, it, it was at one point in time, yeah, because I'm, yeah. I'm that old. Yes, it yeah. was. But anyway, um, but I got really lucky. My, my senior year of college um, with my history degree, I wasn't sure how to basically um, uh, market myself for a career. And I interviewed right during my senior year during a career fair with a telecom company who had a software that they sold to other telecom companies and they wanted a tech writer. Okay. And as a history person, you know, we do a lot of writing, right? <laughs> and so I took the role. And what was funny is it was during the my uh, spring break of my senior year. So I still had the rest of the year to finish. And by the time I finished the year, they had sold the software. Okay. And so they, they sent me a message and we're like, well, we sold the software, but we really like you and we'd like to still offer you a job. And the software was owned in a finance department of a telecom company where they basically audited invoices. Um, I don't know if any, if, if you know this or anybody knows this, but telecom, when they go off their own networks, that's their highest cost, okay? And no telecom company in the globe has networks every single location, right? So they're going off on, and partnering on other telecom uh, companies' networks all the time. And so they, they offered me a job as an auditor. And I came in and I took the role. And within, I think, the first six months, I started uh, basically having a relationship with our IT department who supported us because we would have issues with the software, right? We would have uh, issues with the application. And um, I, I, I started you know, getting on help desk calls and saying, here's what's wrong, blah, blah, blah. And I was taking the time to explain the software to them, like the business process. Like I'm in here and I see this and then I go to this other screen and I'm seeing this and that's not right. So something didn't load right or something's wrong. Can you check or this, this feature isn't working. And what happened is that that team eventually started coming to me with every problem, not just mm. my own, because they didn't, they, they knew the code, 
but they didn't know the business process or how to use the tool. And so there was a disconnect. And so they eventually offered me a role and they brought me over to IT. And I remember I, I, I really spent about three months with myself and my husband at the time, who was uh, my ex-husband, but he was a software developer, okay? And he was like, you're not technical. You can't do the role. And I made them swear up and down. I wasn't going to do anything technical. And I was only going to do business analyst work. And I went over and within three months, the lady who brought me over retired. I had, I think, 30, about 30 people reporting to me, all like 30-year experience developers, mm. all this other stuff. And um, I just had to learn as I as I went. So I'm basically like a self-trained, self-experienced. I've just had things kind of handed to me throughout my career where I, I, it was a sink or swim kind of moments where I just had to pick things up and learn it. And that's kind of driven my career. So, you know, I, I'm definitely a person that, uh, you know, I, I can blend between business or technology. Um, you know, I can influence, I can communicate, I can prioritize, and I have enough technical chops to be dangerous and to run the teams. And it's been an incredible way to kind of grow a, a, a career, especially in data, because the more you understand about the business, and then the more you understand about the processes behind the data, and I'm a process type of mindset person, the more you can actually kind of influence and drive business value from that data. And so it's, it's really just amplified and driven my career. And I got lucky. Is it, is it luck or is it a combination of luck and just seeing an opportunity and not being afraid to go after it? Whereas maybe you could have been, well, I'm not a techie. I don't, I didn't go to Stanford or MIT and, but saying, yeah. you know what? Hey, let me see. I'm going to go there and I'm going to do a good job and I'm going to be, I'm going to be personable. Cause it sounds like the kind of role you had was that you'd be that intermediary between the tech yep. people and the business people and That's others. What I wanted initially, yeah. And you needed a personality and that's, yeah. and I don't want to disparage any like software engineers or developers, yeah. but like by doing a podcast with the blind ambition, knowing those folks, a lot of those software engineers between us, have the they, yeah, they yeah. could use somebody who has a personality like you who could, yep. <laughs> could kind of get it all done. And kind of, you know, so so maybe it's you make your own breaks, right? Like you make it is, little things it happen. Well, I, I would say that I got lucky in that I got hired out of my senior year, right? I think I think that was the lucky part mm -hmm. into a telecom company. I think since then, you know, I tend to be a person who I recognize where there's potential opportunities. And I, I love to learn. I've always had a learner's mindset. And if I don't know it, it's not like I can't figure it out, mm -hmm. right? And if people are asking you to do something that's not necessarily your experience, there's a, there's a trust aspect, right? They're trusting you as well to kind of figure it out, which means that they know there may be some mistakes, but they, they know that you're going to kind of get it and you're going to drive and you're going to bring something to it, right? So I am certainly someone who I'm not afraid 
of challenges. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes and I'm not afraid to learn. And that has been something that I've used over and over and over throughout my career. And it's, it's, it's helped me to become a very, very well-rounded person um, in regards to the types of roles that I can do, um, the types of initiatives, the types of projects, who I can influence, even dealing with customers or lots of other things, you know, it, it, it's just, it, it helps you to basically, uh, you know, extend, right, and keep extending and keep extending. And, and so you work for some pretty high profile companies, right? Tableau, yeah. Salesforce, Microsoft. Yeah. Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And these, so these are some real serious players and yeah. from a history degree from what, Oklahoma, if I remember, is yes, that Oklahoma State. So, <laughs> right? So, so that's for people who are like, Hey, how do I get into tech or even any industry that they feel like, ah, oh, it's going to be hard. It's yeah. not, I mean, it might be hard, but not impossible. And you could do it. Yeah, no, it's totally, it's totally not impossible. I, I think people can do what they want to do mm -hmm. if they set their mind to doing it, right? It's about persistence um, and it's about having grit, right? If you, if you want to get into an industry, take some classes, look at your network, mm -hmm. right? Who networks are so incredibly important. Like I am a, I'm a huge fan of networks and I'm a huge fan of communities. Okay. You can your networks are people that can advocate for you, who can open doors for you, who can, you know, help you to learn something or give you an experience if you reach out and learn to leverage your network, right, and to build a relationship. Your network's not going to do it if they don't know that you have an interest, right? Or some of them may not do it because maybe they're busy or whatever. Go to the next person, right? So, you know, it's all about doors, right? Create your own doors. There's always doors. People, maybe people don't realize there's a door there, but you do and you see it. Find a way in, right? And whether it's shifting to another team, taking a couple of classes, approaching someone that maybe most people are afraid to approach. That's been one of the things that for me, I think that has really, has really separated um, uh, my career. And frankly, it's what, what shifted me from being like a mid-management person into a C-suite type of person is the fact that um, I'm not afraid to approach people. Even, you know, the CEO or the whoever, and I'm a senior PM or I'm, you know, I'm a junior PM, you... <laughs> Most people would find this odd, but the higher you go, um, the, the more intimidating a lot of people find you, okay? Mm. And, and the reality is, is that a lot of those people aren't necessarily truly intimidating, right? As far as they're very open, they're willing to engage, they want to know what's going on. They, they have questions, they're open to ideas, but people are afraid to broach them because of whether it's hierarchy issues where you know you don't want to skip certain levels of managers or whatever but I have found that the more you are of a, being a truth teller and the more you're willing to take risk around you know just exposing an idea or a thought or whatever the more people actually look at you as that's something different and I, I would like to put them in a, a new role or I want to create something for them the last five roles I have had in my career were made for me. They weren't positions that were posted. 
They weren't positions that even existed. They were positions that people made for me out of conversations that we had or me broaching them saying, you need blah, 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 blah. And maybe it took a few weeks for that to sink in, but I kept applying how, why it matters to them and how it helps them, et cetera, and why you need it. And they just made the roles for me. That's interesting. Is that internally or externally with other companies? It's both. So, both, right? so, so, yep. So like my role at, for example, when I decided to leave Microsoft, my dad had died. Okay. So my dad had passed away and I went through the whole, what am I doing with my life? What do I want people to remember me as? And I'd spent a long time at Microsoft <laughs> and decided I wanted to do something different. And um, uh, I had actually taken a role at Alaska Airlines and I'd given my notice and I had already, I had already left Microsoft officially and given my notice. And Wait, okay. how many years at Microsoft? I was there almost 10 years. So 10 years. years. And then you go wait yeah. to an airline? <laughs> All right. That's part of why I decided to go to a, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. But anyway, some folks at um, Salesforce had uh, heard that I was leaving and approached me and they basically were like, well, what would you like to do? And I was an opportunity hire. They crafted the role for me literally in less than a week. They posted a role, got me through a, a round of loops and got me an offer. And I literally told Alaska the day before I was supposed to start, that was going to start. Um, but, but the point was that um, this was all about networking. It was all about, look, there was a need, but they weren't sure what the need was, but they knew that I had certain skill sets that they needed and the ability to communicate what a role could look like. That turned into me coming in as a person to one to build out an enterprise program, which I escalated up to the board and got into the corporate kind of uh, uh, commitments within three months, and then starting to build out a team of hundreds of people. Well, right? Wait, wait, you got, you got, but how do you make that happen? Like, do you, I'm trying to get my head around. So how, okay. So how do you kind of get to say, all right, now you're starting from square one because, you know, Salesforce is, you know, picking you up and you're going to just start this job from scratch. Like, yep. how, how do you, how do you get their attention, people's attention, yep. you know, for people watching it now and then watching it like to kind of, kind of get, you know, ingratiate, is it like, you just have to schmooze with people, network with people, just be great at your job, be a self-promoter. Like, what do you bribe people? <laughs> no, no bribing. I'm not a briber. Um, and I'm actually, I'm not a schmoozer, which is the yeah. funny thing. I'm a good networker, but, uh -huh. but I network with purpose, right? Like, again, hmm. like I'm a data person. And so I have to know how things relate. And I have to know who's consuming what, how that's consumed from other teams. And data is really political, if you don't know this. Anyone working as a, as a chief a data officer or chief data AI officer type of role, it's one of the most political roles of all the C-suites because we own nothing, but we enable everything, okay? We don't own the business strategy. We don't own finance. We don't own marketing. We don't own et cetera. And it's their applications producing data. And our job is to give them data and intelligence back for them to make decisions. So we're at this enablement function across 
working against many, many different priorities, many, many different consumers, where frankly, their business processes often are causing data problems or have gaps in them that are leading to the intelligence issues. So we have to influence that without the ability to, to, to control it. And so I've become very, very good at, um, uh, what do I want to say, influence, right, without authority with looking at big pictures of how things work across companies and organizations, understanding how one group or one organization's work ties to another's organization's work and then another organization's work, like concentric circles, and how to basically influence within those circles for certain behaviors. You're gonna have people who get things right and are like i get it yes let's change this and you're gonna have others who are like screw you i'm not changing anything this isn't a priority i don't really care that it impacts downstream teams and you've got to figure out how to drive the right change of behavior and it, you may need to go up you may need to go across you may need to go down and from above you know uh, all these different angles and you have to figure out how to do it so for me to go from, you know, a team of one to, you know, actually getting board attention and, and moving data into the number one priority, which was trust. Okay. That was really simple because if you think about trust as a value in a tech company, trust is about, we're going to use the data, you know, we're going to use data as we say we do. You're going to trust us to basically tell you if there are issues or incidents or breaches. We're going to have compliance. We're going to have security. We're going to have all these things, but you can't have trust if you don't understand your data. Okay. And that was my role. So you can't even have that without this. So things like, you know, NIST, which uh, is a, is a framework that is used in security to basically drive uh, maturity around cyber security and threats, right? 41% of NIST uplift can come from data management maturity. Okay. So it was really easy for me to just kind of say, if this is your number one value and here's your risk lenses and here's what your business strategies are. And at the time, GDPR and privacy was a huge concern. You can't have GDPR readiness or say you're privacy compliant if you don't understand what's in your data and how it's being used, okay? So for me, it was easy to map those things and kind of drive up the right conversations, but I had to open doors. So back to, don't be afraid. I remember um, Parker Harris, he's the co-founder at Salesforce. I literally, the week I started, I sent him an email and just said, you don't know me, I'm blah, 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 blah. I just got hired to do you know this. I'd like to sit down with you to hear what your concerns are from a risk perspective, from a data perspective. Um, you know, what keeps you up at night so I can make sure as I'm walking through this and as I'm learning, I'm keeping these. I just started sending emails and figuring out, looking at the org chart, who's who, who's important, who's in finance, who's product legal, like who's on the risk management team, who's on the, I use org charts, like, I mean, that's like something I always have open, always, 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 and I walk and I meet with someone, I'm like, oh, they sit here, and they're focused on this. And they tied to this person here and I need to connect those dots or what they're saying compared to the big impact and big initiative doesn't quite align. Who do they work with? Who influences them? 
so that I can get in and, and plant a bug, right? Or, or, or say, you know, wait, who, how do I need? Anyway, I use all those levers. So, so like, if I understood it correctly, it's, it's, and it sounds like maybe this is replica, you could replicate it for other, you know, for people to do that. There's some folks who put their head down and just grind and do their job and that's it. And they don't get noticed and they could do a great job. But yes. Like no one knows what they're doing. No one knows yes. who you are. Yes. And then lots of bosses take the credit anyway. So like, then you're lost. So what you're doing for, so I think I'm understanding when you said initially about intentionally. So you're intentionally yeah. saying, okay, I'm, I, I, I'm a chief data officer. So I have all the data. So that's, that's something important. Yes. And everybody wants and needs to know about the data within their organization to do their jobs better. That's right. So then you're saying, okay, who can I go to, to like, get on their radar screen and you're not even asking them to do anything. You're not saying, Hey, do this. You just say, Hey, here I am. Here's yeah. what I do. Yeah. And here's how I could help. And I, I don't want to put you. words in your mouth, but says, I want to help you. Yeah. Here's how I could help you yeah. because given the data that we have and all the stuff we have here, this could make your life easier. And then, yeah. you know, that co-founder, you know, of Salesforce could be like, Oh, I'm going to keep my eyes open for her. Cause like, That's she right. seems like, She's a go-getter and she could help out. And then I guess you also find other people. So then after a while, you build all these, you know, real relationships, you know what I mean? And yeah. you're not asking for anything. You're not saying do this. You just want it. You're just offering to help. And maybe that's, right. that's the ticket too, right? Like by giving something and saying, hey, I'm just here to help and I want to help you and let's stay in touch. Then they're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like they're not asking. Usually people are asking, right? If you're going to senior people, they're always hitting them up for something. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're giving them something. So yeah. then they remember you, like, oh, this person is 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 really smart and really good and, and really helpful. And and um, that's frankly, my entire career has grown because of that. I mean, you've hit wow. it on so as I said, like network, right? Help mm -hmm. people, right? You, you all work for one company. You're yeah. all on one boat together. Their success is your success. Even if you don't get along, their success is your success, okay? And if you can get them to understand that, you, you start to not have to help. You, you, you don't have to open the door to say, I'm here to help. They'll start coming mm -hmm. to you to say, can you help me with this? Or now that you did with this one thing, I'm having this particular problem with this other scenario. And I think it's related. And I want you to know, because there's probably a better way that we can go about this. And they start to become like your, your advocate, right? Like you're, they're promoting for you. And I, that is something like, I, I just, I learned that really, really early on my, my parents, I'll never forget this. I had, um, I had teacher parents. Okay. My dad was actually a teacher for a while, then an entrepreneurial and he was an artist and my mom was a teacher. Oh, so my and, parents, by the way, oh, they're nice. both teachers. Yeah. Why do we always get along? Anyway. <laughs> um, uh, and, and they have always been people who were like, you do hard work and your work gets rewarded. Okay. You do the hard work and your work gets rewarded. Well, it took me probably two months in corporate world to realize that's not true, okay? Most people who do really great work with their heads down and are just kicking things out, they don't get rewarded because the reality is the way that promotions and budgets and things like that are managed is your own manager doesn't usually get to control those promotions. Mm -hmm. They set in and uh, they set in meetings with their peers 
and talk about promotions because there's a shared budget and that shared budget goes up a level and then up a level and then up a level. And so it's not about even getting your manager to speak for you. It's about getting their peers to speak for you or more importantly, going above your manager and getting those people to speak for you. And once you start to realize like that's how the process, that's how the system mm. works, right? You can start to advocate for yourself. And advocating for yourself doesn't mean give me a promotion. It means recognize the system, recognize how you play into the system and where you can bring value and where you can spotlight where certain initiatives or, or, or projects or roles should be, et cetera. And don't be afraid to go and broach to actually have it created, right? I, like people, there's a respect factor that happens the higher you are with the more bold you are on those ideas. Truly, there's a respect factor because most people are afraid to approach, right? Yeah, I and think so, that's what it is. Yeah, it's it, it's it's like the secret sauce where you what you're doing is you're building up alliances, you're building up, you know, I don't even want to say network because you're, you're bonding with people. You're developing relationships yeah. more than a it's network. Right? Yeah. You're creating these relationships. And then the more you're involved with the different people and more you're adding value and helping out, the more they're going to, as you're saying, then they're going to extol your virtues and tell others yeah. how great you are. Then they're going to, those others are going to reach out because then you become that go-to person where they say, yeah. hey, you know what? Get in touch with Wendy. She can help you out. Get in touch yeah. with Wendy. And then, and then you get that notice where someone who can be brilliant and amazing and fantastic, but just doesn't say one word. And then they go into their annual, you know, meeting uh, for their evaluation. They're disappointed. Yeah. Because like no one advocated for them. No one is their mentor. No one is their sponsor. No one is their rabbi. No one's like trying to get them to help out. They're just going in there and then they feel like, what happened? Why did I do it? Because no one knows them. No one knows what that person really did. You, you have you have to put your neck out a little bit, yeah. right? I mean, no one's going to know your value if you're not helping to promote your own value, right? And your value is often not about expressing what you did explicitly. It's about how did you help somebody else, right? And especially, I said, in my world, again, my role is all about enablement. That's what it is. Like I like I do not own data by itself. My my role is about how do I help others use data and consume data and make decisions, right? And so um, you know, understanding that is like an art. Um, and it's frankly where a lot of chief data AI officers, I don't know if you know this, they have the shortest tenure no. of any C suite is is huh. CDOs. It's 18 months or less. Why is that? Lots of reasons. One is because um, back to we enable everything, but yet we own nothing. So we're often not set up mm -hmm. within the org structure with a dedicated budget, right? Maybe the budget's coming through the CIO and the CIO is focused on the containers of the tech versus what's pumping through the containers of the tech. Right. Um, and they're making decisions about what that technology looks needs to look like without actually understanding the important part, which is what's the information coming out of the tech, because that's what people actually use, right, <laughs> to, to actually make decisions. It's, it's not that there's data in here. It's about how do you use that data, right? And so often they make investments in technology that don't meet the business need, right? And it gets misaligned from a prioritization perspective with the data. 
you've got lots of CDOs who are not studying at the C-suite table. They're tucked under the CIO, they're tucked under a CTO. And it's like, how are we supposed to enable business strategy if we're not at the, 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 the table having the conversation about what the business strategy is? There isn't a business strategy if you can't actually measure it or hold it against something, right? And data is usually an afterthought. So this know? sounds, yeah. So this sounds like the cheesy kind of trailer to a movie where you know everything is going well, right? Your data officer, chief data officer, everything is great, and then all of a sudden, I didn't realize the tenure was so short. Then the rug gets pulled out from under, and you're like, "What just happened?" Yep. And that's kind of what happened, unfortunately, right? Where you were the chief data officer for Tableau, right? Yeah. Great yep. company, part of Salesforce. Yeah. Yep. So you're you're top of your game, yep. and then when all of a sudden all those layoffs hit. It was, it was crazy. So for me, uh, definitely wasn't a, wasn't a rug pull out type of thing per se. For me, yeah. I think the situation was anytime a company is acquired through an M&A, they are not in a position of power, right? Mm -hmm. Whoever acquired you is in the position of power. So when I left my role leading enterprise data strategy and, and, and data management, et cetera, for Salesforce, I went to an acquisition company. And I went there because Tableau is a hardcore data company, right? I mean, it's the number one BI and analytics company in the world. Of course, I would want to be <laughs> the chief data officer for Tableau. Uh, but what that resulted in is, you know, eventually Salesforce wanted to, I mean, let's, let's be real here. I'm a blunt person. They pushed out all of the executives of Tableau so they could put out, put in the their, their, their Salesforce executives, including me, even though I was originally with Salesforce and started the programs. Once I was Tableau, I was other, right? So I was shocked. I was shocked because of that aspect of it, right? Um, I, I wasn't originally from Tableau. I had started all of the Salesforce pieces. All of the enterprise organizations and strategies literally came from me. It was the team of what I founded it all. You know what I mean? I, I literally founded it all. So I was really kind of heartbroken. Um, you know, I, I was heartbroken because it was the first time that I had seen an, an acquisition from the acquisition side. I've been at lots of companies who have acquired other companies, and I've seen lots of layoffs associated to that, but I've never actually been on the, yeah. uh, the acquisition side. So just watching it, that unfold for about a year and a half and what it did to the culture and to the people was you know, really kind of heartbreaking in itself. But then just me personally, I thought I was somehow different, you know what I mean? Because I, I was asked to go to Tableau by Salesforce. I, I had founded blah, blah, blah. Mm. And so I was really, really, really upset. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I still am <laughs> to a degree. Yeah. Um, I would say that though the biggest issue was, you know, the impact of people, right? Um, for me, I was fine with the layoff. I was surprised. I was fine. I was like, oh, I'll just hop and get another job. You know, it won't be that difficult. I, I get recruited all the time and had, and I had purposely stayed at Salesforce, not out of loyalty to the company. That's not how I work. I'm loyal to people, mm -hmm. right? So I was loyal to, I had, I had 200 plus people that I had personally recruited to the company who had worked at me with me from other companies, right? I had relationships that I had built. I had, you know, strategies and initiatives that 
were making major, major impact that I wanted to see fruit, right? So I would, that's what I was super loyal to and, and um, chose to stay with even when I was being, you know, heavily recruited out. But once the layoffs happened in January, so my, my, um, uh, my role was deemed redundant in November. So I took, you know, the holidays and thought through what I wanted to do. But the second week, I think it was in January was when Salesforce announced their 10% layoff. And I just jumped into action. So back to, I'm kind of an action oriented person. No one's gonna open doors for you, okay? And once they announced that 10%, um, I think literally by the end of that day, I had a Slack community um, stood up with hundreds of people in it. Um, that's now grown to over 6,000 people in it, not just from Salesforce, of people who were impacted by layoffs, who needed community, who needed support, who needed a place to voice their opinions, but more importantly, needed people to, to um, uh, actively work together to find their next steps, right? So think, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know we, we have, uh, I think right now we have twice a week where we have um, uh, meetings to talk about either emotions or uh, you know emotional support we have uh we have crowdsourced job market where each one of us are basically hey i just talked to blah 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 they're hiring for this i can connect somebody with a recruiter ping me or i'm hiring there's jobs now that aren't in linkedin that are just in this community that people go directly to basically post okay um we crowdsource referrals I, I literally have sent, I think, thousands of referrals for people mm -hmm. who I have a good network or at least my title, even if I don't know someone, often someone will respond to me just because of my title, right? So I can get someone to respond and directly connect them with someone and say, can you help them get to the right recruiter? Can you help them to get to the hiring manager for X role? Especially for people who are on um, visas early on, like, they had such short amount of time to find a job. I was spending all day, every day for about four months, just helping as many people as I could find jobs. And now this was under the heading of the association which you started or this was the precursor to- This was a precursor. This was precursor. So this is something called the, the, the tech layoff. Um, uh, it's called the tech layoff uh, Slack channel, which mm -hmm. I, I'm happy to share. If anyone's looking, I'll give you the link. There's a QR code. It's still in motion. There's literally still thousands of people, but, but it, it just kind of reinforced again, there, you, you can open your own doors. And when you work with other people and you build communities, you can amplify that, right? Which that's then what's turned into kind of the association where I'm focused. But before we jump in there, let's talk about long-term employment, unemployment, okay? Because I think that's one of the things that we, we really want to talk about. But in a way, this is good because you're showing that there's positivity. See, we in a way, I'm glad you went this route because... You're talking about all the good things. You're giving advice to people, guidance yeah. to people. You're upbeat. You're positive. Yeah. Whereas, I'm glad you took. You know, we took this path because otherwise we would have talked about all like, oh, woe is me, negativity, and that's not. So this way, okay, now we can kind of pivot a little bit to like what it's like and what's happening. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, so let's do that a little bit. I have worked since I'm 15, 15 mm -hmm. years old. 
Okay. I've always worked. I, I've been laid off one other time in my career. I was laid off when I first joined Microsoft. Funny, actually, it was, it was kind of a funny story. I had joined Microsoft. I was three months into my role. Had just moved to Seattle from Oklahoma, by the way. Never been laid off before. And um, this was back in 2007, 2008, right? During the last big economic piece. And came into work one day and the entire org from the senior director down, they, 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 they pushed out. And I remember the VP of the group, she came to me and she's like, you were the one person I was really questioning about laying off or not. She's like, but I know that you're going to get another job. So I'm not really worried about it, blah, 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 blah. She connected me to some people because I was, again, I was really new to the company. I, I didn't really know anyone, et cetera. And she connected me to some folks and literally, I think within three weeks, I had another job as a consultant and within two months, I came right back in. Okay. So it was all really, really quick, but I was at that time, I mean, that was what, 16, almost six, however many years ago. I mean, that was a long time ago, 2007, you know, it's like um, another world. Yeah. It was another world. <laughs> I was much more junior right? Um, much more junior. And I think what I have found is a, um, you know, once the, the tech layoffs started happening in mass in January, which is when they really, really picked up, the higher you are from a career perspective, the more challenging it is to get a new role. People think, oh, you're X title, so you can just walk into what, that's not how it works, <laughs> okay? A, as I mentioned, a lot of those jobs are custom made for people. Literally, right? A lot of people will post a CIO role or CTO role. They're going to up level from within their company, or they already know someone externally, or maybe several someone externally that they already have in mind for that role. Okay. So it's really hard to just walk into any type of a C suite role. But especially when the economy is difficult, and we've already talked about data is always an afterthought. The discipline that I work in is one of the last C-suites that companies hire, okay? In fact, there's a lot of companies that don't, don't even have CDOs, okay, at all. And that's because data is always an afterthought. Once they get big enough from an organization perspective and, and they're really starting to kind of shift strategies, then they start thinking kind of data first and what do we need to do with data? And it takes a while. So it's already something that's like, you know, it's like a, a, a drip of a pipeline mm -hmm. that when the economy is slow, it's even more of a drop. And what I have personally found is that because I have worked at a lot of the companies that I have, right, at Microsoft and at Salesforce and at Tableau, I mean, I've worked at some of the top tech companies in the world that are the most known for data as their most senior data person. And that has, frankly, what do I want to say? Um, most companies feel like I am overqualified for their company. And that has, that has dramatically impacted my ability to get another job. In fact, I'll give you a direct example. Even where there were roles that I was really interested in, okay, that would have been somewhat of a step down. There was a, I, I was approached back in, I think it was March, last year by the CIO at the Gates Foundation about coming into a, a, a role to lead analytics, just analytics, which is a subset of what mm -hmm. I normally do at the Gates Foundation. 
And I told her I was really interested in it because I, I wanted to do the association, which I know we're going to talk about on the side. So A, this would, it's a fraction of what I'm used to, right? It, it, it should be uh, allow me to kind of scale outside of work to do some other things. And she literally, came, she approached me and she came back to me, like, uh, I think a couple of days later and said, I was thinking about it. And I feel like I would be doing a disservice to you if I brought you into this role. You know what? I hate that answer. Like what they do, because as a recruiter, like it's, it's like, oh, I'm doing you a favor by not giving you a job I know. because you're going to be unhappy. And, and. You want to say, wait, I'll be unhappy. Let me be the judge if I'm going to be happy or not. Let me get and that's what I have found repeatedly over the last many months. People are afraid because I've been at such big companies and had such expansive roles. They're afraid I won't stay, even if it's something I'm interested in. They're afraid that, uh, you know, if the org structure is not quite even a C-suite role, maybe I'm going in as a VP or whatever, it's not big enough for you. Like, and I get it, right? People are expensive to hire and people are expensive to train. So I, I, I understand it, but when you're looking for a job and you, you have every qualification plus, like you said, it's like, let me decide that versus, especially when you approach me about it, let me decide that versus the other way around. See, that's and so frustrating, right? Because like, I see this happen all the time for years is that you go and interview, and you're highly experienced, yeah. and you really want and need a job, or you really like this job. And then yeah. you're met with skepticism, like, why, Jack, why are you looking for this job? Hmm, what's yeah. wrong? Yeah. Then they're going to make these biases and prejudice. We always like hear about prejudices and discrimination, but there are a lot of discriminations and things you won't even think of. So I don't even know how you calculate this one. It's where they're saying, hmm, Something is wrong, Jeff. Why are you going to go and now not be a chief data officer? You're going to be like doing analysis. Something's up. Right. And when it's, right. when it's a hot market, it doesn't matter. When a hot market is cool, but when it's a, right. but when not it's a, a hot, hot market, market it's, then, exactly. then so it's it, tough. It's been incredibly difficult. I mean, for me, I, you know, my husband had been a stay-at-home dad for 18 years. So he, you know, he, he didn't do the career right. thing so that he could stay home. We've, we've got, I've got four girls all together um, so that he could stay home and, and, you know, do. He got do, a tough job. He did. He did. Yes. Lots of estrogen in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but he stayed home so that I could really focus on career. And, you know, it's been incredibly hard. Um, I was promoted up into the C-suite, which means that when that happens in companies, you don't get the opportunity to negotiate like a new contract, right? In regards to golden parachutes or whatever. When I first came into Salesforce, I came in at a senior director. And then within three years, I flipped from mm -hmm. VP, senior VP to, to C-suite. Okay, three years. Okay, all by the way, out out of cycle promos. I didn't have there's was there was no um a uh, 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 performance issue related to to my roof. It was purely acquisition. They just exited all of the suite, etc. And so I didn't get the opportunity to negotiate any type of you know golden parachutes or anything like that. Um, we also, you know, during COVID, we we had decided to to move, and I sold like a big most of my stock to go down towards house. I don't know if you guys know how expensive this Seattle area is, but Seattle is one of the most expensive places in the U.S. to live. Um, in fact, uh, Issaquah um, and some of the other areas right next to me are actually more expensive than New York City. Um, really? Live. 
Wow. And so I literally, I sold a bunch of stock to go down towards our forever home. And then when the layoff hit, you know, it's just like crap, you know, (laughs) I wasn't prepared. I'm the only income for my family. Um, You know, I, what should have been my, my safety net and stock we had, you know, I had, I'd gone towards a house um, and it's been incredibly hard. My, my mother, who is 71, as I mentioned, my dad passed away. My mom moved in with us. So she sold our family property in Oklahoma, like last year in March. No, yeah, last year in March and moved in with us about six months before my layoff happened. Because, you know, I, we could take care of her. I had a good income, you know, all of that good stuff. We've been having to tap into my mom's basically retirement just to keep us afloat. Behind on everything. And and I'm can like, I just say, I got to respect you for being so op- uh, honest yeah, and transparent because yeah. most people wouldn't want to talk about it. They don't feel uncomfortable, but I give you credit because yeah. like not many people would be so open as you well, are. It's, it's not an easy thing to talk about because it's embarrassing to a mm-hmm. degree, right? Like I, like I said, like, I mean, I've had lots of sob times for sure. <laughs> I'm always a, a beat about it, but it's like, how have I gotten to a point where I've had these titles and I've had, you know, this success and I'm at this age and like, I was so unprepared, but then I'm like, I've got four kids. I've got, had two that were in college. They all had cars. I've got six cell phones. I pay for, I have, you know, X amount of insurance. I have, you know, this, this, and this, and when it's not a dual income, right. Everything's Mm -hmm. coming, you know, out of, out of our own. And, you know, it is what it is. But like my mom has said, she's had to majorly help. It's caused huge dents in our relationship just because, you know, it scares her to tap into, you know, her long-term retirement. And, you know, she's of that generation where literally the week that I got laid off, my mom, I remember going downstairs and um, I, I wasn't, I think I, I moped around for about a week. Okay. And I, um, I went downstairs and my mom's like, why aren't you dressed? And I'm like, what do you mean? Why am I dressed? She's like, you need to go out and mm-hmm. why, aren't, why don't you get in a suit and go out and start passing out your resume? And I'm like, pass out my resume. What are you talking? I mean, she's like, still like you go and walk downtown and go. To and also she's a, she was a teacher for what you said. So like, she doesn't even know the business world. Cause I just, oh, like yeah. I said, my parents were teachers too. So they never really understand the private sector. They don't no, really, they no. just think it's easy. Oh yeah, go and. You know, you know, like, remember, I was starting out like my career. Oh, just do this. I'm like, it's not so easy. So she she doesn't understand anything in regards to, you know, it could take months to go through an interview cycle before you get a role. Right. Applications are online and you network and you have pre-calls. And so I literally I, I we we got into an argument <laughs> Because I was not pounding the sidewalk, literally Mm. in our small town, passing out resumes. Okay. So like the amount of tension over the last year Mm. has just grown and grown and grown and grown. My husband, and hopefully I won't get upset about this. My husband, as I said, he has been a stay-at-home dad for 18 years he is a blue collar guy. He didn't have, he didn't go to college. He's never had some great job, et cetera. And, and that was fine, you know, for me. So he has gone and gotten a job and he's making like minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And literally he, he comes home and he's like, 
I, I, he feels horrible because he's like, I can't even make a dent of what you do. I mean, like he, he's making $750 a week take home. And I'm like, I can't even really pay a bill. Like my, my cell phone bill is $1,200 because it's my cable plus my cell phone plus, and again, we've got six people. And so like, there's not a single bill, just one bill I can really pay out of what he takes home for, for 40 hours a, a week, right? So it's just been incredibly, incredibly hard. What I've tried to do is I spend my time helping others because I can, even if I can't help myself, <laughs> I, mean, I can't, I, there, there's, there's, there are things I'm doing to help myself, but, um, you know, I can't control if, if someone else is going to hire me, right? I, you can't control that. But what I can do is I can help others get hired, right? And I can speak for others and I can give them a space and I can, I can advocate for them and I can encourage them. And what I've also done is, you know, I've kind of decided, you know, I've spent a long time in, in tech where I basically had been there since the beginning of data and the beginning of clouds. I was cloud before there was clouds because I was in telecom before clouds even existed. So things like journey to the cloud that so many people still struggle with, like I can literally do it in my sleep, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And so what I've started to do is say, look, I'm kind of tired of, of um, the big tech world and helping companies make billions and billions of dollars off of, you know, your employee ideas and other things. I would rather spend more time helping others or helping to drive kind of important conversations and uh, things that are happening within the tech world as a whole, like AI, okay? And this is where the association comes in, okay? So while I have this time, wh while I know I'm, I'm a decent community mm -hmm. builder, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a decent um, uh, uh, you know, person in regards to bringing people together. What I've now focused on is trying to shift data left, okay, to, to the forethought of how people think. Because as you know, since January, when Gen AI really hit the news, which by the way, that's not new. <laughs> you know, I mean, AI has been around for years and years and years. Um, in fact, at, at Microsoft, that first role I talked to you about that the whole team got mm -hmm. cut, I led all of the technology for voice of the customer. And what we built was AI and ML models that were basically scraping sentiment to basically give product guidance back to the products in regards to what customers thought, okay? And that was 16, 17 years ago, okay? Um, but what I wanna do is um, there's a lot of silos that happen in companies, okay? And it's for various reasons. Um, we talked about politics, every company has politics. But a lot of times the silos happen just because people get so focused, as you said, with their heads down on what they do, they don't look up and they don't realize how what they, what they do impacts someone below, downstream from them, right? Or correlates to them. And then if you think about AI and you think about the conversations around ethical or quality AI that everyone's trying to have, there's no way to do that from a regulation perspective. Okay. And all you have to do is look at GDPR, which is, you know, a privacy law or CCPA. There's like 130 plus privacy laws around the globe right now. And every one of them are slightly different. Okay. Um, 
all you got to do is look at those to, or look at the social media debacles that have happened on the Hill around social media and uh, January 7th and politics or, or you know, a depression with uh, teenagers or others to understand that regulators do not understand modern technology and that clouds, right, clouds are a service and they don't own the data. Their customers own the data and the clouds provide them tools that they can either use or not use, okay? So when it comes to ethical and quality AI, the people who really, really matter are the people that have their hands on the keyboards. And that's the, pe the people that are working in the fields of AI, data, ethics, privacy, robotics, and security, okay? The people that are in those fields are the ones on the data, in the companies, they own the models, they own the governance and policy, they own the quality, they own the security, they own the risk, okay? Those people are not focused on enough, okay? And when it comes to regulations, you have a lot of um, regulators who spin out laws that frankly are not clear in regards to how do you technically implement this. And so again, I, I've worked at some of the best tech companies in the world. In fact, I, I led a lot of GDPR readiness at Microsoft from the controller perspective. And then I led it for product at Salesforce, okay? Including for security and everyone else. Every single company has taken these regulations and puts their attorneys on it to do their own interpretation of what the law means. And then they go to outside counsel to get backing for their interpretation of the law, okay? None of them interpret it the same way because the policies are not clear as far as how do you actually implement it, okay? And so what happens is there's this kind of disconnect that happens between the regulators, the, then the, the legal policymakers within the companies, and then the technicians and the disciplines that work underneath this as far as how you implement and so what I want to do is I want to reduce the silos that happen between those fields, okay? Like, I'll give you an example. Part of my time at Salesforce, I reported to a CISO, okay, to, to the head of security. He owned all of trust. So governance, risk, compliance was under him, threat detection, all, you know, cybersecurity, all those things were, were under him. And it was really eye-opening for me because I had never, we're kind of like opposite sides of a coin, right? My job is to help anyone get the information that they need. And their job is to put information in a closet until all of the risks are deemed okay. Okay. So we're kind of like two different sides, but it was eye-opening to me really, really quickly that if they didn't, uh, that even things like, um, uh, classifications of data in regards to, uh, uh, you know, uh, access around what's public or what's confidential, etc. You can write those in a policy and you can apply them as a label to data, but, but you're just going through the exercise of writing it in a policy like a check of a paper and applying it to data without actually understanding what is in the data and who actually uses it and for what? And so there was this whole disconnect between I'm trying to protect something that I actually don't even understand because I'm not in the data itself, okay? 
And um, so, you know, things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, reporting around SLAs for patching of hardware. So yeah, what's, what's, it, what's an SLA? Sorry. An SLA is a service level agreement. So okay. it's kind of like everyone should be within 99% time of patching. If you know there is a patch, you should deploy it very, very quickly, not spend, not wait a month, right, to deploy something, you know, you name it. Um, but if you think about uh, things like, you know, patching, et cetera, they want flat numbers saying everything's at 99% patched when the reality is some things may not need to be patched based on a priority. There could be prioritizations because maybe it's a sandbox that has stagnant data that's all low risk data that's just usage that has no PII, no financials, no anything. And so the more we could bring from a data perspective to them to actually understand what it is they're trying to protect, the more effective they are, the more prioritized they are, and the more um, they can actually, uh, you know, effectively uh, uh, target their resources or their or their or their controls and other things too. Same thing for the privacy teams, right? I would be in constant conversations with privacy legal on say, they contact me to say, uh, we've got a contract with a customer and the customer wants there to be explicitly say that there's no exhaust, there's nothing that we're tracking. And I would say something like, well, look, we can't track nothing because even something like IP address and connections we, we need that IP because that's how we do threat detection. And that helps to ensure trust for the company and for that particular customer. And so we can say we won't track, you know, X, Y, Z things, but that in particular, we have to have to run our own business. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. Like there's silos between knowledge. Okay. About, about how you protect data or how you put policies around data or how you manage risk in which people don't understand the data itself. Sure. And so the point sure. of the association is to basically create a safe, trusted environment where anyone working in these fields, regardless of your level, so you don't have to be a C-suite, can come together and do knowledge shares, can have community, can basically have job marketplaces that are targeted for these particular disciplines, who can find education and certification for these disciplines. But more importantly, we want to basically create the voice of the experts. Okay, because again, it's these people who control. And how, how big would this be? Would it be, you know, privacy, ethics, AI regulation, uh, data? Does it, does it, uh, compliance, regulatory talking, matters, legal all of, matters? All of that. So you're talking hundreds of thousands of people that could potentially be in the association long-term. In fact, there's a forum called the International Association of Privacy Professionals. It's kind of not, it's not, they're not going as broad as we do, but they focus explicitly on privacy. And I think they've got 50,000 members across the globe because privacy has been such a huge, you know, focus. But I'm like, to get ethical quality AI, that's far beyond privacy. That starts to get into ethics, which is a philosophy versus a math yeah. equation. So, so it's a lot. So it's, 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 it's like you're peeling back the onion and you're, there's just so much there. Uh, and I, I'm curious what you think of this. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday during the uh, Giants game and where he's very knowledgeable of cybersecurity. 
And okay. his, his thoughts is that there's going to end up being lots of huge class action lawsuits because all, all, all the information we're taking from, you know, ChatGPT and others, yep. like they didn't give approval to like use all their stuff. So eventually there's going to be some shakeout saying, wait a minute, you've been using all that stuff for free. Basically you've been stealing it and now we want to be compensated for it. Yep. So I'd imagine the whole game is going to change where the game is going to massively right? change. And then so you'll probably have to pay like $20, $30 a month to use it to make up for the lawsuits that these, right? And so, so so it's like a lot of a lot of things are going to happen, right? It's going to be interesting to watch how it rolls out, but but um, your friend is right on. Um, right now, there's 101 plus AI regulations that are in motion across the globe. So that's on top of the 130 mm. something plus privacy regulations, again, which all have to be implemented in the data life cycles themselves, right? Um, you also have, like, like he's mentioning, you've got copyright concerns, which were never a concern before, because the way that it was handled before was because um, there wasn't a generative kind of aspect, um, you know, uh, it was just, you know, you're, you're an individual scraping, and it's up to you to go and basically say, you know, uh, who, who quote who this came from but now you have tools that are scraping and they're scraping entire copyrighted material i mean think about like the 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 george uh r, r. martin right the game of the thrones guy he's now sued um several companies because they're breaking his copyright um policies through generative yeah. ai they're they're not saying who it's from you know they're not paying him anything they're not even saying who it's from you name it so there's going to be legal suits related to this for years and years and years that are going to go up to the supreme court you've got bias concerns as well okay there's no clearinghouse that exists around getting non-biased data so that people can basically augment their models to make sure that they don't have bias um, and so that's kind of my point about bringing all of these people together. We are the people who live in this day to day to day. And there's already a gap between privacy, understanding the data and what could be implemented or security, securing the data, but not understanding. So I want to create a dedicated space where we can build, we can bridge those gaps and we can start to actually drive expert um, gold stamped technical implementation mm. standards okay that we all agree to like this is how you would implement this is how you would monitor this is what this means and we can give some flexibility because again we're the implementers like we're the ones who put these things in and have to go through the and we can influence the regulators okay with our voice because we know the space we're the experts in this space we know how it works right the fact that you have, like you see on the conversations about the Hill, right? And they're bringing in the top seven tech companies. Again, a lot of them I've been at before. That's the wrong approach. And it shows you again how they don't understand it. Those top seven companies provide a service. They do not own the data pumping through the service their customers do. And there's not a single company in the world that's on a single um, provider infrastructure substack even those companies 
meaning you've got data coming in from third parties to you, you're sending data to them, you've got on-prem, multiple cloud mm. substrates, you've got tons of data tools, you've got business applications like your CRM systems, your, your, you know, your, your sales systems, your financial systems that are all clouds in themselves, okay, and not those seven companies. Data is way more complex than the regulatory folks understand. And those seven cannot implement ethical AI. All they can do is give tools to help others. But who can is the people with the keyboards, okay? Yeah, it, what's really interesting, just, just to deject a second, is that hearing you talk about it, you're, you come across so passionate and so like jazzed. And maybe that's another thing for people who are listening and watching this is that maybe you don't have to necessarily work at another organization, another, you know, big tech company or whatever it might be. Your maybe, own door. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> for some people who, you know, you know, have, have, have the, you know, strong stomach to do this and say, Hey, you know what? F this, you know, it's like all this stuff over there. You know what? Let me do my own thing. And if I fail, I fail on my own, not because someone let me go. And if I succeed, you know, this is my baby and I'm going to work and build it. So do you think for people, you know, who, who are out there who just are linear and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm just going to be, you know, working in a corporation because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what you, you know, that that's, that's like what you're told to do. And And maybe it comes a time where you're like, wait, this, this sucks. This is yeah. not really good for me. It's not helping me out. Yeah. You know, I have to do something on my own. It sounds like what you're, you're, it sounds like you're kind of veering in that direction to say, you know what, let, let me do something on my own and make this happen. I'm not going to be dependent on, you know, the whims of uh, acquisition or what have you. Yeah. No, I, I, I think back to create your own doors, right? Mm-hmm. There's lots of ways to right. write your own story. Okay. And you can write your story within, you know, a room that exists or you can build your own house. Right. It it really is a personal decision, but like for me, I'm still looking for jobs and doing this. Well, it makes sense. You hedge your bets. I think that's a good for people who are look, who are are in this situation. You want to hedge it because you don't know. So, you you know, (laughs) even if you're currently employed too, think about it, does it hurt to kind of do your best at your job to keep your job? But yeah. then also look for another job just in case anything yeah. happens, because that's the market we're in now. It's very, you know, very shaky, especially well, for white collar professionals. Totally. It's also what do you love, right? I mean, yeah. we all have passions, right? I love my job. And even in the corporate world, I I love what I do. What I love is I love um, I love bringing knowledge. And it can be in anything, whether it's true data or just you know, talking about something you saw and what that meant and how it correlated. I like, I love to, to, to open eyes and bring knowledge and I love to build communities. That's essentially what I love to do. And there's many, many, many ways to do that. Okay. And what I see is an opportunity right now with AI where it's not even something like I would like to do. Like it's a neat, like it's a must do. Like it, it, it just, you got to do it. I can say you're so excited about it. this. is This is great. It's great. You're this yeah. you're So you got to figure out how to make it work. And then, if you don't mind my asking, what would you say to people who maybe don't want to start a new business, but they've been yeah. out of work for three months, six months, nine months, a year? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe 
well, yes, you could start a business. Maybe you could start small, right? Maybe a little side right. hustle. Um, right. What would you suggest from your experiences going through that maybe yeah. you got to like, ah, if I had to redo it over, I'd do it this way, what have you. Yeah. Any, any advice? Do, uh, yeah, I would do a couple of things. Um, so if you've been at this for a while, uh, don't give up on your network. Go, go back to your network, even if it's people that you've talked to, especially this time of year. It's almost November, right? Everyone's doing fiscal planning for next fiscal. There will be new jobs. There will be new, new opportunities go and start plugging into those and finding out what exists, right? Don't be afraid to create your own role. If you don't see something, find someone to talk to you at that company or in that organization or in the, you know, whatever that is and have a conversation, ask. You'll be surprised what will happen for you if you just ask the question. Things don't happen if you don't ask or you don't say you're, if you're interested, okay? So be sure to ask. Um, and then I think the other thing is that this is just, it's a cycle. So again, it's depressing. It's hard. I get it. I'm living it. It's incredibly hard, but it will change. Okay. It will change. So try to just stay energized, find something you're passionate about to keep, you know, keep your, your, your mood up as you're trying set targeted hours for you to in, involve, uh, you know, others in your network or to put in, in uh, applications, et cetera, but just keep plugging away. That's, 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 that's the way. If you think there's a door that you're interested in, figure out what you got to do to build it. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. What's the worst that can do? What could happen? If you're not working, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> right? Now, Go for it. Wendy, what about for the other side, for like your mental health, emotional well-being? Yeah. Would you suggest for people also take time out to do certain things for self-care, just, just to keep sane and see, yeah. I mean, just to keep going? Yeah. Any, any, it, any suggestions that maybe yeah. work for you? I think, I, I think. Everyone, that's so different for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Some people exercise, some people, you know, go for walks, people do, you know, whatever it is. For me, um, I like to help others. So again, this goes to, I spend a lot of time listening to people who are, uh, who are struggling themselves and giving them advice and trying to keep them up. I, you know, I, I spend time opening doors for them. Even if you're not working, you can't help somebody else. I, I assure you, you can help someone else. And that builds a relationship and that's someone who's going to help you in the future, right? I think I've made some of my closest friendships over the last year of people who have been impacted, who I never knew before this happened, okay? That now we talk all the time, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, be, don't be afraid to help and just don't be afraid to do whatever it is you need to do in order for you to maintain some type of balance and stability. I think that's great advice. Well, well for people who, who want to, find you, find the association, where should they look? What kind of sites, you know, what yeah. are the uh, so sites you to go, go to? Yeah. So A, we have a business page on LinkedIn. So um, you can find it if you want to go to, to, to my name, you can find it, you can message me, but it's the association.ai. That's our website as well, .ai instead of .com. And anyone can join. It doesn't cost you anything. There's zero risk. Um, I've got a team of about 50 people now working together to build this out. And we're going to make a dent. We're going to change how, how these type of regulations and these type of really, really, um, uh, you know, complex issues related to type go going forward. So I, I'm super excited about it. It's time we, we take a little bit more uh, power into our own hands. 
Well, this is great. I'm, I'm so glad you came to the show and, and I appreciate so much how you're just transparent and open and honest. And I can't stress that enough because what I've seen over the years when people, it's basically, I see with guys, they do this a lot. They pull yeah. back from society, you know, like let's say they lose their yeah. job instead yeah. of going and doing everything you're mentioning, you're networking, try to open doors, try to make things happen. They pull back because they just, they're afraid to say I lost my job. Yeah. And they can't get past it. So then yeah. no one knows they're looking. So no one helps yeah. them. And then a day goes by, week, year, whatever, because they're not putting it out there. So like I love the fact that you're just saying, hey, this happened. You know, you know, you're not happy about it, but you're not yeah. gonna, you're gonna keep going. You're not gonna give up. And it sounds like you found your passion. And now it's just how I can monetize this and make it happen for someone yeah. else. It could be that, but you you just can't kind of give up, is the bottom you line. It sounds like up. we got to keep trying, pushing knocking on doors, kicking yeah. doors open, you know, getting in front of the right people. And, yeah. and eventually I, I've seen over the years with, with, with people from recruiting, eventually it kicks all, cause all you need is that one thing. That's right. it. You need that right. one, one piece of good luck, that one door open. And then right. all of a sudden everything changes. So that's right. That's right. Well, in, in back to what you said, it, it, it is a lot of time, man. I had a lot, I had people that were impacted that reported to me that didn't want anyone to know that they had been laid off, even their own families, okay? Because again, you're talking about, especially in the tech world, uh, the big tech world, you're talking about very, very, what do you want to say? Type A, mm -hmm. always been successful people, right? It's a huge blow. It's a huge blow. But, but like you said, these are people, right? People are people. And people, failures happen, bad things happen to us all that we can't control. Even if you, you know, you had nothing to do with it, remove that, right? And people will help people and people will understand. And it's, it's not something to be embarrassed about or ashamed about, right? Um, I think that's part of what's wrong with the world is, you know, people, people have lost the ability to empathize or they're afraid to share certain things because uh, they're, they're afraid people won't empathize or some, sometimes look down upon, that's wrong. You know what I mean? And, and it would be a much better role if, if, we, if we didn't think that way. <laughs> that's great. I mean? That's a great way to end it. It is perfect. I really appreciate you taking the time. Everyone check it out. I got to tell you, you inspired me. I'm, I'm serious. I'm going to write some notes because I have some ideas because I, I know a lot of people in the spaces you're talking about, particularly on the regulatory side and the privacy side and all that. And then, you know, uh, as you can tell by just having these LinkedIn lives and the podcast, I like to help people. It's, it's, yeah. is it also like you feel good about yourself when you help people too. So it's, it's, it's it has, so I, I'm going to, I'm going to come up with some ideas and I'll run it by you and see if you're interested because I think this is going to be big. Yeah, I, you let me know. And again, okay. there's a lot we can do in, in the system around tech or any industries that help people more around these type of hiccups or just around careers in general. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And so we need to do it. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. And this is great. Of course. Take thank care. you, Jack. Thanks. Thank You're you. welcome. Bye.